Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Paul, you'll remember, began the book of Ephesians with a song of praise, and then he continued with prayer. And now Paul is well on his way in his sermon, in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul has preached that we were made alive in Christ in verses 4 and 5. We've been raised with Christ in verse 6. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ in, in verse 6. And we have one great purpose to display in us his riches throughout eternity in verse 7. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone in verses 8 through 10. Now Paul wants the Ephesians to understand, to grasp that God has made both Jew and Gentile one new man in verse 15. Paul peers back through human history. Paul writes how in the past God dealt with the Jews, how God dealt with the Gentiles. In verse 10, it dis he discussed the salvation of sinners in general, but now Paul is going to focus on the status of Jews and Gentiles in particular. This may come as a shock to you, but the early church was marked by prejudice, hatred, fear, suspicion, factions, divisions. They came along racial lines. They came along language lines. They came along tribal lines. And I wish I could say to you, everything's changed. Everything is different. But Martin Luther King Jr. famously quipped that 11 o'clock on Sunday is still the most segregated hour in America. And that Sunday school is the most segregated school in America. Paul argues in the past, God dealt with the ethnic nations. But now God's focus is centered on one new spiritual nation, 
one new man, one new creation. The true citizens of heaven are made up of both Jew and Gentile who come to God in Christ. The Lord God promises to recreate the person who comes to him in Christ. Remember what I've already told you. We are all sons and daughters, if you will, by creation. God created all human beings in the image of God, but then God recreates humans in Christ. So God made us, and then Christ made us new. God gives the person a new nature, makes the person a part, listen carefully, of a new nation, one new man, the true church. In my research today, I found out that there are at least 195 independent sovereign nations. That includes de facto Taiwan that China doesn't recognize and they don't recognize each other. The fact that they don't recognize each other doesn't mean that they don't exist. In Genesis 11.1, 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. The Bible teaches that in rebellion and disobedience to God, mankind, you'll remember, attempted to build a tower. It was called the Tower of Babel. Some of you remember it from Sunday school lessons. And you'll remember it was there that God confounded the languages. What you may not remember is why they were building this tower. Human beings with one language and one purpose were trying to build an edifice remembering the judgment that God had made to the earth. And so it was their flimsy way of trying in rebellion and disobedience to make sure that if God decided to judge the whole world, that somehow they would escape that judgment. And so God confounded the languages. The result of confounding human language caused human beings to isolate and then gravitate to one another. In fear and prejudice, men waged war against each other. They committed awful crimes against one another. By some estimates, there's some 2,700 languages spoken in the world with 7,000 different dialects. In Indonesia alone, there are 365 different languages spoken. More than a thousand languages are spoken on the continent of Africa. It's my understanding that the most difficult language, according to some linguists, is either Icelandic or a, a language called Basque. And Basque is spoken in northwestern Spain and southwestern France. It's not related to any other known language in the world. Somalia is the only country where everyone, without exception, speaks the same language. If you can't speak Arabic, you can't basically go there. So Harold Williams, a man who lived in New Zealand, was listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the most prolific linguist. He's said to have spoken 58 languages fluently, including trade languages like Swahili, Hausa, and Zulu. It was said that he read language grammars the way you and I would read comic books or popular fiction. The guy was just a, a savant. Why all this talk about language? Well, some people have suggested that if everyone just spoke the same language, 
that no one would fight. But you know the truth. Because everyone in your family speaks your language, don't they? By the way, did that bring peace? I can honestly say that everyone in my family speaks the same language since most of the Italian-speaking portion have already gone away. Families fight. Nations fight. Peace missions fail. I read a quote that from 1500 B.C. to 850 A.D., there were 7,500 peace treaties signed or eternal covenants drawn up between warring factions. The treaties were meant to bring peace. The average length of time that they lasted was two years each. There's only really one peace treaty. There's really only one eternal covenant of peace that's been initiated by God towards sinful human beings. Jesus, God sent Jesus to serve as an ambassador. According to the Bible, God, the Lord God, the creator God, sent his son, his only begotten son, to come from heaven to the earth to proclaim to the people of the earth, God is willing to forgive you and to reconcile you. And he's willing to make a mechanism through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Clearly, God's problem with sinful humanity could have come to an abrupt and dramatic conclusion during the flood. If ever there was a time where the Lord said, you know what, I'm pretty much done with you. You're done. But God saves Noah and his family. God spares human beings. Paul wrote in the book of Romans that we were enemies, but now we are reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having reconciled will be saved by his life, it says in Romans 5.10. Paul explains the peace mission in this text. We were distant, estranged, separated from God in verses 11 through 13. Jesus brought us near to God in verse 13. Jesus brings us peace in verses 14 and 15. Jesus provides reconciliation in verses 16 and 17. Jesus gives us access to God in verse 18. So look again in verse 11 and 12. Separated, one lost people separated from God. Paul writes, therefore, that's what I've just gone over with you. Everything. Therefore, based on everything that we've learned up until this point, remember. And there's a reason why Paul, in his writings, invites us to remember. It's because for some reason we're forgetful. He says, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, he's speaking to the Ephesians that he's writing to, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. Paul calls on the Ephesians to remember their former human predicament. Remember what a Gentile is. It's the person that God created because somebody has to buy retail. No, that's not the reason why God created the Gentiles. 
A Gentile in the Bible is anyone who's not a Jew. Paul's writings and calling was largely to the Gentiles. Before Christ came, there was a great gulf fixed between heaven and the nations of the world. This is the language of estrangement that you just read. Read it again. Without Christ, aliens, strangers, no hope, without God. Before Jesus broke down the dividing wall, the barrier of separation that is the description that describes, if you will, the human condition, the Gentile condition. For centuries, the circumcision, that's the Jews, looked down on the uncircumcision, that's the Gentiles. The Jews had a spiritual attitude of superiority. They were the chosen people. And many Jews knew this meant chosen, not for greater reward, but for greater responsibility. There were some Jews who understood the enormous task that God had burdened them with. But there were others who interpreted their chosen status as proof that they were rejected by God. In other words, in, in, in embracing and talking about their chosen status, they began to think about everyone else as being rejected. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, it says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Jewish women, by the way, in the ancient world, were forbidden to assist Gentile women in the birth of children. Do you want to know why? Because they objected to bringing another unclean person into the world. It's been said that the Jews in Alexandria made a covenant with each other to never, no, never show kindness to a Gentile. Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, as unclean, as uncircumcised. And these were terms of derision. They were designed to be offensive. So when Paul uses the term, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that is a sign, the covenant accomplished by human hands in the, in the human flesh, He's referring to the physical act of circumcision that separated the Jew from the Gentile in the ancient world. But does having a physical mark on the body, is that what makes you right with God? Paul is going to argue in the book of Romans that that's absurd. Clearly, it's God who makes a difference. And he's going to also argue that it isn't the physical act of circumcision that really makes the difference. It's the faith that is accompanied by the sign whereby it represents what's real. Let me use an example. Imagine you're married, and that's not hard for some of you to imagine. But imagine you're married, and your husband takes off his ring and he says, it's just a symbol. And the moment that I take the ring off, I'm not really married. Is it the presence or the absence of the ring on the hand that makes you married? No, you're married with or without the symbol. God made a covenant with Abraham. 
He was to be a blessing and a help to Gentiles. The Jews were meant to be a light and a testimony of God's love and God's forgiveness and God's cleansing. God set the Jew apart as a people to be a nation, to be a light to the watching world. Israel was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be different in their worship, in their clothing, in their food. These differences weren't to promote a superior attitude, but rather to attract to a watching world the unique claims of God over his people and over his creation. But the Jews became proud and arrogant. The very privileges that were supposed to produce saints produced arrogance and loveless hypocrites. And the Jews aren't the only ones with this promise. Sometimes Christians slip into this horrible idea that they begin to look at the people around them in terms of just being lost. And then we develop a superiority complex. This is the problem with privilege. The problem with privilege is that it can lead to pride. When we as Christians in America use our privileges as labels to exalt us or to set us apart from our brothers and sisters in the rest of the world, we are at grave risk. When we think that American Christians have favored status, or that we're favored by God, or we're favored in the world, we run the risk of allowing pride to become arrogance, and arrogance to become conceit, and conceit to become boastfulness. So we, we're no longer meek, we're no longer gentle, we're no longer humble. So we move from the position of being a servant to thinking that we're the master. Let me be blunt. Pride is never, ever a sign of God's favor. Ever. It's the first step towards self-righteousness and self-centeredness and then self-deception. Pride invariably, without exception, leads to God's judgment. And so Paul confirms that the Gentiles were separated, alienated from God. The one word best describing the Gentile condition is the word without. Paul lists the fivefold alienation. We're going to go through it quickly. Look what the, it says without Christ. The Gentiles were alien to the Messiah. The Gentiles were not a part of the Messianic people. They were not a part of the Messianic community. The Ephesians, by the way, had as their particular deity that many of them embraced was the goddess Diana. Paul makes it clear that they did not know Christ prior to the gospel. And so the person who embraces the idea that you can have a right relationship with God apart from the gospel, apart from Christ, absolutely don't understand what Paul is saying. In Paul's mind, this is a tragedy. People who belong to false religious systems, false religious philosophies, are lost. I got a card on Sunday from a lady who came and visited our church. 
She attends another church locally. She wrote me a note basically saying, there are three churches in the area and all of them love God. She was shocked. She was shocked that our church would suggest that there's such a thing as people who are lost apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. I know that you know people who believe that if you're basically a good person, that God owes it to you to save you, regardless of what religious system you embrace or philosophy you embrace. To be outside of Christ According to Paul, means condemnation. All the nations and the people who were without a messianic deliverer. Here's the point that Paul is making. The people groups that don't know God or love Jesus, they are without a plan, without a purpose. For those nations, their destiny is judgment and all nations apart from the Lord Jesus can only expect judgment. So he says, you used to be without Christ, whether you are whatever nationality you happen to have grown up with. And then he says, without citizenship, this means excluded, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth is not a word that we use in our culture and our society all that much. For instance, in the United Kingdom, they use the term commonwealth quite a bit because what they do is they lump all of these people groups together to describe the kingdom, the United Kingdom. So if you're a part of the United Kingdom, you might be from Scotland or you might be from Ireland or you might be from some other place or, the, or some other portion of, of what used to be a part of the United Kingdom. That means that even though you are distant and distinct, you all share a common citizenship. You share a common sovereign and a common covenant. And so what Paul is writing is that God gave Israel special protection, special blessings, special love. The Lord gave them the law so that they would know how to relate to God and know how to relate to each other. God gave them the covenants. God gave them the priesthood, the sacrifices. The Lord God gave them his personal guidance. The psalmist declares in Psalm 147 verse 20 that God has not dealt with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. The psalmist agrees with Paul that the nations apart from God, apart from his revelation, apart from his guidance, were without instruction and without citizenship. A Gentile could enter the nation as a proselyte, but he was not born into the special nation as we're born into the nation of God, Christ's church, in other words, regardless of your nationality, heritage, skin color, everyone who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, by trusting Jesus Christ, are set in a brand new circumstance and citizenship. He says, you were without Christ. You were without citizenship. You were without covenants. 
The Lord didn't establish specific covenants with the Gentile nations. And the Jews never let them forget it. Jewish men would begin their morning prayers with, I thank you, Lord, that I was born a Jew and not a Gentile, that I was born a man and not a woman. We laugh, but it was that kind of entrenched. For the Jew, the supreme covenant was given by God to Abraham and then to Moses. For the Jew, again, this divine covenant was an agreement in which God binds himself to carry out his personal promise to his people to redeem them from sin, to bless them forever. And so for many Jews, they began to think of this privileged position as an automatic ticket to heaven. There's other ethnic groups that aren't immune from this. Italians certainly aren't immune. I tell you almost every Sunday, there's two kinds of people in the world, Italian people and people who wish they were. But every nationality would say, no, no, you've got it all wrong. It's Irish and those who wish they were. Or it is Scott and those who wish they were. Or whoever you happen to come up with. The promise to Abraham was that faith and obedience became the true marks of the covenant. It was faith in the promises of God and obedience and submission to the promises of God. No wonder the promise to Abraham was, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the world will be blessed. And so the covenant surrounded and then determined God's dealing with Israel. And Paul writes that the Gentiles were without God. And that might hurt on so many different levels. But the Greek word is atheo. We get the word atheist from that. In the Greek language, when you put an A in front of something, it means no or the negative. And so when he uses the term atheo, it doesn't just simply mean no God, it means without God or absent God. And because of the construction, it means literally a people who are without God. Now, Paul notes in the book of Romans that the Gentiles, despite being without God, are still without excuse. That God revealed himself to all of mankind in creation. And that God revealed himself to the human conscience. That every human being who wakes up on any given day, who sees the sun go up and then go down, who sees the stars begin to sh shine at night, who sees the moon and the sun and what I often say, the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. They say there has to be something more than philosophical naturalism and materialism. There's something out there. But human beings suppress the truth. And they 
knew the truth about God, but decided to embrace idolatry instead. And so Paul says that they were without hope. Ancient Gentiles in the ancient world, according to Paul, were without hope. They had plenty of religion. They had plenty of philosophy. They have plenty of distraction. The Roman poet wrote, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. It was his way of saying, you live and you die. In England and also on Boot Hill, there are two different tombstones that read, pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And someone scratched in underneath it. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. <laughs> but in the old world, in the ancient world of the first century, it was known as the age of suicide. And we're fast catching up with the ancient culture. Two weeks ago, I was in Larimer County doing some social service consulting work and encouraging people up there in Larimer County. The director of, of the social service project said to me, Larimer County now leads the state of Colorado in teenage suicide. Colorado is one of the largest suicide populations in the country. People in the ancient world would take their life out of sheer despair. And so it is today. People apart from Christ, they live lives of quiet and sometimes not so quiet desperation. So the, the people who think the deepest about the human predicament, who find themselves at risk, who begin to evaluate, cogitate, think about their condition, and they discover that they have the least amount of hope. Those who live apart from Christ wrap their mind around the frivolous, the petty, things which really don't matter. People fear ultimate questions and ultimate answers. People escape to intellectual games and sports and hobbies and digital distractions and porn. William Hendrickson summarized the condition this way. They are Christless, friendless, hopeless, godless. Woody Allen once said, mankind is at a crossroads. The one road leads to hopeless despair. The other road leads to ruin and meaninglessness. I hope we have the wisdom to make the right choice. Do you know who's, why he would say such a thing? Because he's without hope. There's no hope in his heart or in his life. I'm fond of saying there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who have hope and those who need hope. And if you have it, give it. 
often what I'll do is I'll say, hey, how many of you have hope? Raise your hand. And they raise their hand. And then I say, how many of you need hope? And some people will raise their hand. And I'll say, look, look, look. If you have it, give it. If you need it, take it. What you may forget is that this spiritual condition wasn't caused by God. It's worth noting that Paul said the Gentiles knew God in Romans chapter 1. They knew him, but they refused to honor him. The sad truth is mankind knows the truth about God, but they turn from God and then they embrace that which is not true. Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. The church is supposed to be a light to the watching world. And so Paul writes in verses 13 and 14, one new man reconciled. He goes, but now, but now. Remember we have already talked about the book I'm working on, Big Butts of the Bible. This is the adversative. In spite of what you've just read, now Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those of you who were without God, were, were without the covenants, were without all of that stuff, God has brought you near. Now in Christ, think about this. Alienation becomes transformation. The emptiness becomes fullness. Unbelief becomes belief. Darkness becomes light. We were once, look what it says, far off. Do you know what Paul is doing as he's speaking to the people of Ephesus? He says, you were far off in your thinking and in your living. There are people all over the world who love their children and they love their country, but they're way off and they're thinking about God and they're living for God. We are in Christ, but now look what it says, in Christ Jesus, you are brought near. Those who were once far off, the Gentiles, are brought near to God, how? by the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, we're living in a world when you talk about bloodshed, you talk about innocent blood, you talk about shed blood, you talked about applied blood. Remember throughout our study, I've reminded you over and over again that salvation is always by grace. It's always by faith. It's always by blood. It's always by a person. So the person who says to you, no, you can have a right relationship with God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, apart from the gospel, Paul doesn't support that idea. Why does the Bible make blood such a central subject? Because salvation is always by blood. In Hebrews 9.22 we read, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. The sacrifice of Jesus 
not only closes the gap, but empties the gap so that everyone who's estranged from God can now know him and be reconciled in him. And look what Paul writes in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Jesus is the source of peace. Religion isn't the source of peace. Catholicism, Protestantism, human philosophy, that isn't the source of peace. In the original language, the sentence is emphatic. He himself is our peace. Here, peace doesn't just simply mean the absence of conflict. It, it doesn't just simply mean we don't have to fight anymore. We don't have to be mad anymore. We don't have to be antagonistic towards one another anymore. Here it means not just simply the absence of conflict, but it means the positive reality of what it means to have a right relationship. It is peace with God. You're no longer at war with God. You're no longer estranged from God. Jesus destroys the barrier that separated us from God. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God. And Jesus, again, he's done more than simply reconciled us to God. Paul is arguing that he has reconciled you to each other. That's part of the point that he's making. Jesus has done more who has made both. Jew and Gentile, one. Not separated, but united. In Herod's temple, there was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. The court of the Gentiles was supposed to be the place of evangelism, instruction, demonstration of the truth. It was supposed to be a place where you could witness to the truth of God's character and the attributes of God and what God desired. It was supposed to be that place, but it became the place where the money changers and the hucksters plied their trade. Jesus referred to this court as my father's house and that it should be a house of prayer. Instead, of a court of witness or a court of testimony, there was something that became more important than the court. It was the wall of partition. In other words, instead of being a place of witness and evangelism, a place where you could tell people the truth about God, it became the place that accentuated the alienation, the separation. The partition. By the way, the wall came to represent who was excluded, who was alienated. During excavations in the Temple Mount in 1871 and 1934, there were inscriptions that, that were found that belonged to this ancient wall. They found the inscription written in Greek and in Hebrew. It read, quote, no foreigner may enter the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary enclosure. Anyone who's caught doing so will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death, unquote. In 
other words, posted on the wall around the temple in the court of the Gentiles as you made your way were big signs. Gentiles not allowed. Gentiles not allowed. Gentiles not allowed. Imagine you live in a culture where you're a part of the minority culture. Christians not allowed. Whoever you are, not allowed. Women not allowed. People not allowed. Not allowed. You're not allowed. When I was thinking about this, I remembered something that took place almost to the day today. Well, before it, it, it was a blistery hot summer day in 1987. President Ronald Reagan stepped up to a microphone in Berlin near what was called the Brandenburg Gate. He challenged his Soviet counterpart, General Mikhail Gorbachev. In Reagan's now famous speech, he said, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. And then the famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. How extraordinary. The wall was built in 1961. 26 years later, the Berlin Wall stood as a visible icon. It was a wall of separation. It wasn't just a wall that physically separated two peoples. It was ideological. It was political. A mass of concrete, barbed wire, and stone. It separated Eastern and Western worlds. Two minds. One enslaved and the other free. But you know what we sometimes forget? From the moment that he made that speech, it took two years for Gorbachev's answer to the president's challenge. When sentries were quietly told to put their rifles away on Gorbachev's orders, citizens from both sides picked up picks and jackhammers and they began tearing down the wall and as great as a feat as that was it was nothing compared to what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary even though we embrace it in an imperfect way the wall that represented spiritual alienation the wall that separated Jew from Gentile was broken down in the person of Jesus. Do you understand what Paul is arguing? Even though all of culture and all of society and even the church continues to embrace the notion that we are distinct and separate people, Paul is arguing the moment that you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, in a very real way, you become something different, something more than you were before, something more than Italian, something more than Greek, something more than Arabic, something more than Persian, something more than Nigerian, something more. Paul writes, outsiders become insiders. The divided become united. Look what it says in verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh 
the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create, listen carefully, in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. When he says having abolished in his flesh the enmity, we have to understand what is Paul saying? That Jesus died on the cross. What else is he saying? How is it possible? How is it possible that the death of Jesus could break down the wall of hostility? How could a carpenter's death on a Roman cross cause the hostilities to cease and desist? Paul argues by abolishing the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, he creates a new humanity that is not Jewish or Gentile. Paul uses the expression to create in himself one new man from the two. Paul argues this means that God has not only declared a truce between the Jew and the Gentile, but he himself has made them a singular unit, one new man. The Lord God has made some very dramatic, clear differences between the Jew and the Gentile. Here's what I'm here to tell you, and I want you, again, listen carefully. God began by making Jews and Gentiles different, listen carefully, so that both could be saved. Once God's purposes in salvation were completed, those differences were to be erased forever. Those differences would be erased through the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross and the subsequent reconciliation. Paul will be the first person to argue that a Jew has to come to Christ in order to be saved. The Gentile has to come to Christ in order to be saved. In the book of Romans, he argues that the whole world is under the judgment of God. He argues that the Jews are under the judgment of God and the Gentiles are under the judgment of God. The reference in verse 15 to the law of commandments contained in ordinances may be a reference to the whole law, but it may be a reference to the ceremonial law. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish, that means nullify or make void, the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them in Matthew 5.17. The law of Moses can be divided into two broad categories, the moral law and the ceremonial law. The moral law existed in part to expose our sin. The ceremonial law existed to cover our sin once our sin was exposed. Paul is arguing that once our sin is exposed, it is not the ceremonial law that covers our sin. It is Jesus Christ himself. He doesn't cover our sin temporarily. 
He cleanses our sin permanently. Jesus fulfills the moral law. He keeps all the requirements of the moral law. He fulfills the law. He abolishes the ceremonial law, the washings, the Sabbath restrictions, the prohibitions, the kosher diet. None of these become necessary because the blood of Jesus Christ covers sin once and for all. For Jews who are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. For Gentiles who are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Jesus abolishes the ceremonial law, and listen carefully, creates one new man. And again, Paul is suggesting to us that this new man is a new kind of humanity. Not simply Jewish, not simply Gentile. The new humanity is not under law, but is under grace. We are one, united in Christ. The church is the body of Christ. God's new man. God's creation. I have a note in my Bible that the Gentiles were to be saved. That wasn't a mystery. He quotes Romans 9.24 and Romans 10.19. The mystery hidden in God was the divine purpose to make of Jew and Gentile a holy new thing. The church, which is his body, formed by the baptism with the Holy Spirit and in which the earthly distinction of Jew and Gentile disappears. In other words, remember what Paul has already argued. He's argued that for the most part, Gentiles were lost, lost, lost. But it was never God's intention for them to be lost or remain lost. Paul makes it clear in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not even for a moment suggesting that when Jews got born again that they ceased to be Jews or Greeks when they got born again ceased to be Greeks or that slaves ceased to be slaves or free ceased to be free and or that males can be whatever you want. Well, you know, I'm not feeling like a male anymore. Today I feel like I'm female. Or for females who feel like they're male. This is not the point that he's making. The point that he's making is that the artificial distinctions that we used in order to reject each other instead of accept each other are gone in Christ. There's no place for prejudice for the Christian. There's no place for misogyny, hating women for no reason. There's no place for hating men for no reason. There's no place for hating blacks for no reason or whites for no reason. Paul argues in verse 16, look, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The hostilities are to cease. I think I need to define enmity because I have this sense that maybe some of you don't really understand what it means. Enmity is the feeling or the condition of hostility 
It's feeling inside of your heart ill will or antagonism or resentment or aversion. I'm hoping that you didn't have to grow up in the kind of house that I grew up in, which was marked by profound prejudice, deep resentments, profound prejudices and resentments. That's what he's talking about. This this enmity is that feeling, that hostility, that ill will, that antagonism, that resentment that that fill our hearts as we consider all of the pain and the problems and the difficulties that people have faced over the years. Paul argues Jesus died. Jesus died to end the hostility, to end the antagonism, to end the prejudice, to end the illusion or the fiction that you have preferred status because you're white or because you're black or because you're rich or because you're poor or because you're smart. In verse 17 it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus preached peace. What does that mean? Peace with God and peace with each other. He did it to the Jew and he did it to the Gentile. Paul might be making reference to Isaiah 52.7 or Isaiah 57.19 where in both places, Places, there's this illusion, the hint that God is going to save the Jewish people and he's going to save the Gentile people. After the resurrection, Jesus preached to the apostles directly. And then when he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, he preaches to all people. The Jews were near to God. Why? Because they had God's instructions. They had God's word. They had God's prophets. The Gentiles were afar off. Why? Because they knew so little about God. They knew so little about the Bible. You may have grown up in a religious home. You may have grown up in a Christian home. You may have had access to unbelievable spiritual privileges. Or no privilege at all. You might have grown up in a home where not only did they not know God, they didn't love God. Maybe you were even taught to hate Christians or hate people who loved God. But whether you were grown up with privileges or in poverty, Jesus makes peace for all. And here's the point that Paul is making. Jesus is available to all. There's no racial distinctions. There's no gender restrictions. There's no economic restrictions. There's no intellectual restrictions. Jews and Gentiles spent generations generating animosity towards each other. And you may have grown up in a world where generations of hostility and bigotry and antagonism just grew and grew and grew. What's interesting to me is in the first century church, some people had the idea that it didn't seem fair or reasonable 
that you could just turn off Jewish and Gentile prejudice after so long, after so many generations. But Paul says, he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who were close by. Paul is basically saying, Jesus preached peace. And you as a Christian, you're supposed to be a peacemaker. You're not supposed to be a peace faker or a troublemaker. You're to reflect the heart of God and the heart of Jesus, your Savior. I get that we have conflict and I get that we have disagreement. But Paul is inviting us to consider something way different. Is your life in Christ marked by hostility and animosity or generosity and peace? And look what Paul writes. For through him, that's Jesus, we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit. What does that mean? By the Holy Spirit. In what way? It is the Holy Spirit who saves the Jew. It is the Holy Spirit who saves the Gentile. Anyone and everyone in order to have access to the Father has to come by the Son because they've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who gets to approach God? People who are saved. Born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether Jew or Gentile. We have access only through Jesus. Only through God's Spirit. We're united because we're born again. Our experience often leads us to doubt. What Paul is teaching and preaching. Well, if this is true then why do so many Christians hate Jews? Why do so many Jews hate Christians? Why do so many black people hate white people or white people hate black people? Why is there such continuing antagonism and prejudice and division and tribalism and alienation? When Paul says, it's no longer true in Jesus. Paul is arguing that when we divide along ethnic lines or racial lines or linguistic lines, that we're making a, a very, very terrible mistake. Paul sees a new world. He sees a new society. He sees a new creation. I'm going to suggest to you that he sees nothing less than a brand new race of people who have been made new by Christ. That's why he can argue elsewhere, if any person's in Christ, he's saying this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has been made new. Paul sees a new world, a new society, a new race that's characterized not by alienation, but by reconciliation. No longer divided and hostile, but
but united in love and peace. In this new society, God rules. His love reigns. We must beware the kind of denominationalism that turns churches into sects and contradicts the organic unity and universality of Christ's one new man. I was reading at a sarcasm site about a guy who claims that he's bi-denominational. He says, you know, I grew up a Baptist, but there's something inside of me that desperately wants to be a Presbyterian. Now, we laugh at just the stupidity of, of stuff like that. We all have differences, and we all have distinctions, and we all have all of those things. But Paul, Paul is inviting us to see ourselves as God sees us. He doesn't see us as distinct racial groups or linguistic groups. And we see the ultimate division. God sees us as saved or lost. Saved or lost. Because there's only one way that we can actually obey God and have peace and be brought near. It's because our hearts changed. It's because we have become a part of a brand new people group in Christ Jesus the Lord. There's a lot more that I need to tell you, but we'll have to save it for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that Paul saw this new world, this new society, this new creation, this new race, not characterized by alienation, but reconciliation, not divided and hostile, but united in love and peace. Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us, help us to put aside those bitter and divisive things where we find ways to stay apart instead of stay together. Lord, we pray that we would guard ourselves against the temptation to elevate ourselves or pretend even for a moment that we're a part of a superior race that we are a part of a privileged few. But Lord, in humility and holiness, that we would acknowledge that our singular identity is found in Jesus. And our singular unity towards one another is found in Jesus. And so again, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would be people who doesn't perpetuate the wickedness and the division that Jesus died to do away with. And 
And so, Lord, again, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.